0: Welcome, everybody, back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me, as always, is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski.
1: Hello. So, Andrew, today I wanted to kind of do something uh, that we haven't really done before. And uh, I think it would be perfect uh, for the show. And that is kind of a trilogy of tales. So, sometimes people who follow me on uh, social media, like uh, on. Uh, Odd Pittsburgh and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. See that I post these kind of little stories or just one photo that has a, a nice story, you know, short, succinct story, um, perfect for the internet and not necessarily perfect for an entire episode. So, what I had this idea to kind of mix it up a bit and share multiple stories in a single episode. And that's what this trilogy of tales is going to be. Uh, and we're going to begin with um, maybe one of my most favorite. Stories that I've uncovered, and that is the hero of the Monongahela. So now, when you think back in American history or Pittsburgh history, you you think about the victors per se. You don't necessarily always think about stories or tales from the other side.
0: No, history is written by the victors. That's true.
1: That's true. So the same could be said about the the French and Indian War. Okay, now the French and Indian War wasn't. Uh, you know, to, to to put it in a one-sentence summary, <laughs> uh, you know, a seven-year-long battle that was fought between the British and the French, who were already inhabited western Pennsylvania, and their Native American allies on both sides.
0: Well, and that skirmish became a global conflict. That it, it did. It kind of became the first world war. Right. And it all started here in western PA.
1: Yeah, started by none, or, none other than George Washington himself, some say. <laughs> But this story is not about George Washington, and it's not about General Edward Braddock or some of these other heroes of the Monagahela. We're talking about a hero on the French side of the army. Um, Somewhat controversial uh, And most early history books. You will not find uh, stories really written about the French in their time here. Um, You won't find stories that are in favor of the Native Americans. In fact, most times that you do see Native Americans mentioned in Pittsburgh history books is when they refer to them as savages <laughs> or uh, as someone who, um, you know, almost as if they're non-human counterparts, you know, counterparts uh, and unfairly recognized. And you'd only hear about them very rarely Would you hear positive tales of Native Americans and or the French or and or any other community that wasn't the European settlers. Uh, the British settlers, but this tale always fascinated me it's about a man. He was a captain in the French army and he was the commander at Fort Duquesne here in 1755. His name was Daniel Leonard de Beijoux and a young man. Uh, he started the morning off at July 9th, 1755 at the chapel of the assumption of the blessed Virgin of the beautiful river, which is Pittsburgh's first church. Okay, this was located down near kind of where Trinity Cathedral is today or Trinity Chapel is. If You know where that is, downtown. Uh, it's the oldest cemetery in Pittsburgh as well, including Native Americans actually buried at that cemetery. But uh, he knew full well what was going to be happening because uh, he was already approached by, um, you know, they, they knew that, that securing the point and uh, the three rivers of Pittsburgh was so important to succeeding in winning the war or winning any kind of battle when it came to trade or anything that had to do with um, Western Pennsylvania you needed to secure those three rivers and if you couldn't secure it you were doomed to fail and that meant France failing not just you <laughs> you know your whole country you let your whole country down if you fail um so he he wasn't about to just give up Fort Duquesne without some kind of big fight uh you know he wasn't just gonna abandon it and disappear and just call quits. Uh, not so easy, but the problem was at Fort Duquesne, he only had 72 soldiers with him and about 140 Canadian militiamen who kind of came down during this time period in July. And he gets word, right? That 1300 people are marching here to Pittsburgh to forcibly take Fort Duquesne, uh, led by none other than general Edward Braddock. And in that army, that same 1300 group of people was george washington john fraser daniel boone <laughs> right <laughs> some big league names in uh western pennsylvania lore and they were all coming here and all trying to defeat this guy daniel leonard de Beju. and he goes not so quick so what he decides to do is uh native american village at the time was logstown which was a little farther down the river ohio river uh, where Ambridge is today. Um, it's basically kind of where Logstown once sat. And it wasn't just uh, one type of Native American group or one culture. It was multiple cultures, multiple tribes all there. All their chiefs were there. And uh, he wanted to kind of jump the gun. He knew these people were coming, so he knew he had to act, act quick. And he uh, wanted to ambush the English as soon as they came here. And he knew that how how are 70, you know, under 200 people going to defend this whole city, you know, against 1,300 people. Uh, The only way you might even have a slight chance is if you could convince your Native American allies here down the river to fight for you and on your side. These are sometimes these people that don't even want to fight at all. Some of them were kind of ambivalent you know to the uh cause uh, didn't really care i mean this was their land so they didn't really care if the english or the french had it or what was going on uh, at the time they were still being okay so captain bijou right heads down to the river you know heads down to the uh uh logstown and um talks to the chiefs and they tell him uh, he's like look you know we need your help we, we you know the only way we're going to be able to defend this land is if you come and help me and the chiefs told him no right so he's like oh man so he goes back home defeated um he decides he needs another game plan you know it's july 8th now you know it's uh, july 9th is the infamous battle of the Monongahela, which is coming on the next day so he decides to go back the next morning the morning of july 9th talks to the uh to the native americans there and tells them like look i am one of you you i'm your brother you know i'm we'll, we'll fight together as as one right rips off his shirt his clothes dons their war paint and literally leads the charge down the river (laughs) and to ambush General Braddock in the woods of Braddock, which was today called Braddock. So you think about the style of fighting at the time and um, just like you've seen in probably Civil War reenactment movies, you know, most people just kind of lined up in a long line and would just start marching and firing and reloading and you know, each line would be starting to get you know shot and died and then people just keep on marching keep on pushing forward and hopefully you have enough troops that by the end you know not everyone's gone and you were able to kind of get through the line they call it Native Americans did not march in lines <laughs> so uh and neither did Captain Bijou he said you know I want to fight like you I want to fight like one of you you know so What they do is uh, would hide up in trees or hide behind bushes and, and, you know, just all scatter all over the place. And then they would taunt the British soldiers. So the British soldiers, so they they arrive near Braddock. So they're they're marching, you know, the the Braddock's troops is marching, you know, regular speed. They get to the Monongahela River. They're crossing the river. They show up in the Braddock's field today, which is just the town of Braddock. And uh, they hear this horrifying whoop sound, like whoop, whoop. You know, coming from all over, not knowing, like, the guys on your left or guys on your right, behind you, in front of you, they're like velociraptors, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you think the guys in front of you, meanwhile, two of them come from you at the side, and that's exactly what happened. Um, Almost immediately, Captain Beju is running down, you know, leading this charge, and is shot point blank in the forehead and dies. Okay? This did not, you know uh stop the the cause of the native americans from you know wanting to say oh boy you know we're going to stop now fighting in fact em- encourage them to fight even more and uh as the combat got even worse you know it got even more intense uh and they were clearly being overwhelmed because these these british were just fighting in that line and meanwhile the native americans and the french were attacking from all sides that General Braddock himself was shot in the lungs and collapsed off his horse and and almost died right away. He did. He died a little bit later, yeah, um, like a week later or, so, or a few days later, um, leaving the people without anybody in command. Okay. Meanwhile, the Native Americans were going there with hatchets and scalps and you know scalping people on demand, like in front of everybody, um, running about. And eventually, the British just kind of broke the line and ran about wildly, just trying to escape as fast as they could because they knew they were going to get massacred they just kept on doing what they were doing. Uh George Washington at the time even though he had no official position or any kind of rank and command was able to some kind somehow like impose some sort of order.
0: Yeah, this is when he gets his first taste of real leadership, right? That's
1: right. Yeah, it was because of this event and it was able to gather enough troops to form a, you know for, form a retreat <laughs> um because they clearly lost the battle and uh the people that were left in fact George Washington is a quote that he wrote about this exact thing. And he said, we've been beaten, shamefully beaten by just a handful of men. Okay. So the total amount of troops, right? About 200 people on the French side, including the Native Americans, 1,300 people on the Braddock side, the English. Out of the 1,300 in this battle, 456 were killed outright. 422 were wounded. Of the about 50 or so women that came and accompanied them, and the kids as well, uh, as maidens, cooks, and, and just families, only four returned home. Half of them were captured. The other half killed. killed. Yeah. Um, the body of the French commander, the uh, Beju was carried back to Fort Duquesne and buried in a now long-lost grave somewhere along the point. Um, you know, he, he fell into the arms of victory dying boldly as any other crusader who came before him. And by a success of turning a desperate cause into a triumphant defeat of a much superior force. And, uh, I got this story from the baptismal register of Fort Duquesne, which, uh, I, I own an original copy of it, but it was, it was, uh, created by a, a reverend here, uh, named Lambig. And, um, It's an interesting, uh, literally baptismal and internment register of Fort Duquesne in French. And uh, sure enough, this little story is kind of like a footnote in there, this footnote of history, this guy who's buried somewhere at the point of Pittsburgh, uh, a hero, died a hero. I mean, he was a, you know, (laughs) what else do you call it? Uh, Someone who could do this, even though, yes, he's not technically on the winning side. um, What he did no less deserves mention. And that's why I wanted to talk about him first. And it's a story that I always found inspiring, how you could just, you know, he rips off his clothes, you know, dons their war paint. I mean, how cool. <laughs> I guess in his mind, he thought
0: desperate times called for desperate measures kind of thing, and just kind of, yeah. Um, I, it makes me think about how the British called the Native American savages and things like that. And I maybe it was because they did things unconventionally, like with the whooping and the well, that's not how you line up for a war. Like this is how you do it properly, <laughs> right. but you're trying to kill each other. Is there yeah. a proper way? You know, the rules of war have always seemed like kind of a gray area and a and a weird thing because you have to line up this way and this is how you fight. But yeah. if you're, for, you're fighting for your lives, shouldn't you be able? To, shouldn't you be fighting dirty? Right. And if there's only 200 of you, should you march out there in a line and be like, well, here we are. Yeah. I mean, we're going to die, but at least we're
1: going to do it in a line. You think they would have learned a lesson, right? But, you know, clearly, if, if you look at Civil War, you know, battles, and they did the same thing. So it's not like it's a uh, uh, a new uh, idea of this kind of lining up in a row. Um, well, back to ancient times. Yeah, was even archers. They... You, know, you can send out the archers first, you know, and they're the first to die. You know, but they're also your first defense. So... I guess there's different strategies to warfare and you could probably talk about that, you know, but, uh, clearly the native American way worked <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and was, they
0: were adept at it where the yeah. British had probably never seen anything like it.
1: Nothing like it. Um, I mean, terrifying. I mean, it was literally like they walked into Jurassic park, like you didn't know who these people were. They looked weird. You know, they didn't talk your language. They had, you know, they would literally scalp a woman in front of you. And so what else are you supposed to do? And, um, One of the reasons why you don't hear good stories because of stories kind of like that because uh, they were brutal and, uh, you know, they meant business. This was their – I mean, they were defending their land. So this wasn't just about having the British or the French here. This was about uh, defending a thousand-year-long culture, which has already been established in western Pennsylvania. Apparently, you know, we've talked about before for Meadowcroft, it's gone back 10,000 years of Native Americans here. So how do you defend, you know, and what? three days you're gonna to try to take that away from them like no
0: well I also believe the <laughs> philosophy of the natives was they, they didn't own land it was kind of just used and everybody used it right and then when Europeans came it's well this is our land it's like and, and so there was probably a disconnect of well you it's not your
1: land. It's oh yeah. It's how we survive yeah, off the land. Try to convert them to whatever and all this stuff. But now some people were successful, you know, and and were able to navigate kind of both sides, and because they did, they weren't dummies, you know. They they were smart. They knew how to take advantage of the situation that mm-hmm. they were being, you know, uh, led into. Unfortunately, and um, even though they did have many comebacks, you know, that kind of died out by the at least by the eighteen tens. You know, that was a thing of the past. So. The next story I'm going to tell you is, uh, have you ever driven through, you know, the Liberty Tubes or the Fort Pitt tunnels and, or Squirrel Hill tunnels and wondered about, like, is, you know, where does all this exhaust go, <laughs> right? You're driving through the tunnel. You put your window down. You're like, oh, man, what's that smell, you know? Yeah. I've, n- um, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, there are ventilation shafts in the tunnels that go straight up. And, in fact, Squirrel Hill is a good example because right in the middle, there's a uh, there's a big tube, basically, that goes straight up through the mountain, and all that nasty gas goes up, you know, it gets filtered, and then gets put back out in the atmosphere. <laughs> um, but the Filtered, quotation marks? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the exact process, but I do know that they have fans in there to kind of pull out that. But what if they didn't? What if they, or they broke? Or what if they didn't even install them yet? And that's what this next story is. Uh, the Liberty tubes disaster of 1924. And, um, I'm going to read an excerpt from the Pittsburgh press that was published on May 10th, 1924. And it's worth reading, um, verbatim because it, it's, there's so many, uh, just the way this was described will blow your mind. So, uh that day, by the way, uh, a record 649 vehicles entered the southbound entrance between 7.30 and 8 a.m. Okay, so now these are old-timey cars, you know, Model T's and all that type of stuff, um, you know, 1924 cars. It's a Saturday morning. Everything seems fine. You know, this tunnel's been open now for a few years. You know, I think, it, oh, 1920 or so is when it opened, so it's already been well-established as a tunnel and a route, but what happened... Next was an act of true heroism in the face of a true disaster. So the, the headline is Courage, Cool Courage, Looms Large as Day's Crisis Reveals Unsung Heroes. It goes on to say that panic, heroism, cool courage, the raw elements of disaster rode the confusion that jammed the exits of the Liberty Tunnels today when poisoned death swept its vapors through the packed tunnels smothering more than a score of persons into insensibility. Into a half hour of frightful chaos, scenes of bravery, fear, and disorder that passed beyond description crushed their speeding pitchers when a traffic jam at the north end of the tunnel caused the line to slow up for a period so long that deadly fumes had their time to do their dirty work. Minutes when death for trapped motorists and pedestrians was imminent transformed ordinary (coughs) men into heroes. Men who had risen from their breakfast tables with never a thought but to resume their daily routine found themselves cast into the lists of heroisms by fate. Hundreds of persons milled around the tunnel mouth, breathless. Those who had fled in time came staggering from the entrances where the gas mask gas murk rolled. They were gasping, eyes bloodshot, hearts pounding. Policemen, firemen, motorcycle officers, the disaster squads, the United States Bureau of Mines, civilians, all plunged into the tombs where men and women lay unconscious and their automobiles stricken when the gas tear had overtaken them. Lights were obscured within the tombs within the tubes by the density of the gas. Rescuers groped through the darkness, fumbling from car to car, soaked handkerchiefs over their faces, hunting for any who have fallen. So now think about this the gas, in other words, you know, there was no way for the gas, the exhaust to escape, and everyone started dying or passing out yeah. from carbon monoxide poisoning uh even some of these people going in to try to save them uh, a good example are the two men thomas morrison and cw hooker two cops whose bravery stands forth as something to be remembered with no gas masks both fought their way through hundreds of yards into a death trap they carried out on their backs four persons who would have died but for their arrival morrison found one of the men sprawled on the bottom of his coop his hands grasping at the door. The fact that there was no motor key in the car indicated that a panic-stricken companion had fled, leaving the other occupant in his car to his fate. There are many brave men like Hooker and Mortison who performed mighty deeds in that welter of foundered cars and unconscious men and women and vanished when their work was done so that their names still remain unknown. The story of Charles Meir, an electrician of the Panhandle Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad, was pierced together after he was found lying on his face beside a railroad track 200 yards away from the scene from the disaster, those who found Mare think he was among the first to rush out to the tunnel to aid the rescue work when the alarm was sounded. After helping to carry out those who had dropped, his own lungs tortured with the gas, his heart labored desperately. Mare wandered vaguely back through the work he had left. There the gas felled him without warning. It acts that way. A workman shoved his dazed, gas-scarlet face into the blue handkerchief staggered from an orifice between the tubes. He swayed a moment, speechless. No one noticed him for a short interval. So great was the confusion. He waved his arms, then, without warning exactly as if someone had kicked him in the knees from behind, a man's legs doubled up and he fell on his face into the concrete pavement. Rescuers picked up the victim up. He fought them madly, He's still silently in the clutch of gas, where he grabbed at his throat in horrible gestures. Gestures. Officers and men of the Pittsburgh Police Force never distinguished themselves with greater gallantry than in the black depths of the tunnel. First aid was given to police officers, policemen overcome by carbon monoxide fumes while rescuing people from inside the tunnels. As order was forced upon the excited, excited jabbering throng at the mouth. A rift in the crowd showed a row of men in the gray-black uniform of the motorcycle service writhing on the curb. Rescuers had oxygen tubes in the mouth of each man. One officer slumped on his back in his cushion of an automobile, his gun belt flapping loosely, his shirt open, his chest rising slowly with each painful breath. His com- com- comrade at his side was able to sit up, supporting his oxygen tube with trembling arms and sucking as the good air if his strained bottle will ever get his fill of oxygen. These men had raced to the tubes time and time again, almost overcome their courage and driven them back for more. When the last victim was carried out, the men of the motorcycle division still beat back one more evil smelling, choking fumes, lest some persons may still be fighting for life in one of the abandoned cars. As the last cars were towed out, their certain certainty was established and no other persons remained inside the tubes. The men of the motorcycle squads toppled to the streets and laid there. They had fought, the fight to the end alexander Thy- tyhurst and roy brant two other patrolmen knocked down connecting doors within the tubes and allowed for a passage of air they found three of their comrades: cox kepler and sergeant a.l jacks huddled against the wall and carried them into safety ammonia was sprayed into the tubes by the disastrous squads uh, by the bureau of mines to counteract the carbon monoxide brave men in their work alone held that certain tragedy when the Liberty tubes disaster counter first toll on Pittsburgh's stupendous folly, the streetcar strike. So interesting. Uh, yeah. Who would have known that between seven 30 and eight AM a random day in 1924, 649 vehicles were inside the tunnels. Remember that's what this said that somehow they would all have to be rescued by any, you know, who, who knows who, and, and, these, these kind of unsung heroes, uh, who, you know, I'm sure you don't know these names. And, um, you know, that's the point of telling these types of stories is like, these things happen. These people did, you know, show heroism and were able to, uh, save the people uh, luckily, uh, in this particular case, but sometimes you're not lucky. And it's also goes to show you how just how dangerous, uh, how those titles could be, um, You know, in the worst kind of scenario, this is the worst case scenario for one of these tunnels. Well, how did this happen again? So there was just traffic jam inside the tunnels. And no ventilations. No ventilations, yeah.
0: So And because of the streetcar
1: strike, there was that So many many people were, you know, exactly. So many people were driving their cars and uh, it was just one thing led to another to where it was just total disaster. Imagine that happening today, you know, in, in a tunnel. I mean, sometimes that does happen, like where they have to shut down the tunnel because something happens in the tunnel, but... Imagine 600 cars <laughs> where everybody is being affected. Yeah. Women, kids, pets, if you had them in the car or whatever, um, you know, pets probably wouldn't make it. You know, uh, I mean, kids probably would have a tough time making it. So uh, let alone for the adults. So, I mean, it's just an amazing story of heroism that isn't widely told. Uh, there's no plaque, you know, on the Liberty tubes that says these men are heroes who save these people from certain disaster. And yet uh, uh, we talk about them today. So uh, always remember uh, the dead and the people who fought for us. That leads us to our last story. Have you ever heard of a riverboat called the Island Queen? I have not. So the Island Queen uh, was a huge five-decked, 284 feet long, all steel and glass-enclosed riverboat built in Cincinnati. Came here to Pittsburgh for an eight day excursion of moonlight dancing, uh, with a total capacity for about 4,000 passengers, big, big river boat, uh, with a crew of almost a hundred men. Okay. On, I mean, that's how big this, this boat was. And they would just park it down at the wharf and you go there and party on the weekends and even go on little excursions sometimes and um, go down the river and on this boat. It was nice. Uh, Now, this was in 1947, so it's not that long ago. There's people alive today who were around. And, in fact, when I do post this story on uh, social media, I do get responses from people who were there or saw it or knew their parents, told them about it or or witnessed it themselves. Um, Someone who's 80 years old would have been 10 years old, you know, when this was happening uh but around 1 p.m. on that day, September 9th, 1947, about half of the crew uh was offshore. And the other half was kind of on the boat, just working around the deck and other people were just sleeping, you know, just taking up some time in the middle of the day, you know. Uh but suddenly around 1:10, a thunderous, stunning, ear-splitting explosion shook the island queen from stem to stern. Falled immediately by orange sheets of flame. Within a few seconds, the entire superstructure was engulfed and almost completely destroyed. For a few moments, Pittsburgh stood still, numbed by the catastrophe. And this is a story I've heard from people who have uh, talked about it, uh, witnessing it. The Island Queen was already barely a skeleton while hundreds of windows were smashed along Water Street and the Boulevard of the Allies by the concussion alone. And jagged pieces of steel and red-hot cinders showered from four to five blocks from the waterfront into downtown Pittsburgh. Dozens of cars that are in the wharf parking lots were set on fire and had their paint streaming from the terrific heat. The silence gave way to one of the most chaotic spectacles in the history of Pittsburgh as firemen and police raced to the dock, fighting their way through thousands of people who poured out from every building. Miraculously, some crewmen made it off the ship still breathing either by being blown off into the water or by desperate dives. When the first rescuers reached the scene, only about 10 or 12 heads could be seen bobbing in the water. A towboat picked up several dazed, bleeding survivors, and the rest were quickly brought ashore. But by this time, the Island Queen's sides had turned bright cherry red as the fire ate through the steamer's interior and their huge dance floor. Almost everything that could even identify the records of that ship had sunk below the oily surface of the Monongahela. Everything on the landward side was gone, except for the housing of one huge paddle wheel with its name Island Queen painted on it. A showman to the last, the steamer still displayed its names and all I could see. The cost of the catastrophe went as high as its spectacular explosion. 19 people, who were all crewmen on board from, on the, from Cincinnati, met their death on this ship. The ship valued at over $600,000 at the time, which is about $6.5 today's money. Proved a total loss. Uh, The cause, by the way, the U.S. Coast Guard investigated it and they blamed it uh, partly on the chief engineer, who himself was a victim. Uh, The board found that he was welding a loose deck uh, piece near the fuel oil bunkers, a bunker capable of containing 30,000 gallons of oil. Oh, that's a lot. (laughs) And a straight spark combined with the rivets. Uh, You know, kaboom. And there you go. So, yeah, it was a um, almost 20, you know, 18 to 20 people were killed instantly in this gigantic riverboat explosion that sprayed debris all over downtown Pittsburgh, blew out every window on Boulevard of the Allies. Um, Of course, not as bad as the Great Fire of 1845, but even they forgot about it, apparently, you know, because it was that that was much worse. However, this was a uh, you don't see if too many. I mean, you, you remember dates. You know, and we've talked about this before. Like we, you know, you remember nine eleven, right? You remember in in um, England they remember seven seven, right? These attacks, you know, that happen where people die or hundred people die. Um, you don't, you know, you, you didn't know what the island queen was. I didn't know what it was until I looked it up. Like not many people do. And this was not even 70, it was 70 years ago. <laughs> so twenty people lost their lives right here on Pittsburgh on this explosion of a steamboat, and yet. Nobody knows it even happened. Um, that's uh, that's why, you know, we talk about it. It's because, uh, you know, that. Like, imagine that was you on board, you know, and, like, at least for some, someone to know your name, you know, or, like, uh, just to go up in a speck of dust and never be thought about again or, you know, uh, remembered.
0: Well, just imagine if you were driving on the Parkway East and you saw one of the Gateway Clipper Fleet, boats engulfed in flames in the middle of the monongahela
1: explode literally explode raining down pieces and bodies yeah with Uh, the
0: rivets probably acting as kind
1: of um little grenades (laughs) you know for real like who knows what kind of damage the rest of downtown had i mean they said this is straight from by the way this is partially uh written in the pittsburgh press on january 18th 1959 so it was a kind of a 10-year look back uh but even then people were starting to um and the, the photos exist. Uh, the Heinz History Center actually has some really good photos of the Island Queen explosion. One person who was on board, I can't remember what his job was, but he went to have a, like a picnic lunch up on Mount Washington, and uh, he happened to have a camera. And he, sure enough, as soon as it happened, was happened to be taking photos of it and got it on camera. So there's actual photos of this explosion, mm-hmm. and uh, it's insane when you see. I mean, it's like a five-decked that's a big yeah one of those big (laughs) river boats you're used to um gone you know just a pile of steel on you know all half sunken in the river it's uh insane just how bad the disaster was there's this amazing photo that's in the uh the Pittsburgh press that I think I shared with you uh, which maybe we'll post it of this priest just kind of sitting in the back of his uh station wagon, just like with his heads in his hands, you know, not knowing what to do. I mean, it was such like a, just a huge explosion, a sudden disaster, 20 people just being vaporized, you know, um, you know, how do you deal with this and confront all the others who were hurt? Um, it was a huge disaster that a lot of people thought would never be forgotten. And yet we've forgotten it. And, you know, hopefully, you know, by talking about it, we, we keep that memory alive, go, you know, investigate photos of the Island Queen on your own to, there's other stories that you could find about this amazing ship, um, but you know, oddly enough, it's not. It was the second ship named Island Queen. There was another ship named Island Queen that also exploded, but this one was back like 20 years before that, so it just had bad luck. So don't name your boat, don't name the your Island, boat Island Queen. Island Queen. Yeah, Maybe exactly. the Mississippi Queen. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, so you you got these tales that are kind of like uh, you know along the rivers. You know, Monongahela River here. We're we're talking about kind of this theme. For this particular uh, episode and um, this trilogy of tales of forgotten heroes of the past and um, you know the it shows us that um, that while we might know history you know we might not know it that well there, there's always these these hidden heroes and these hidden stories and hidden figures and we've talked about that before when we did a uh, our Pittsburgh female episode these kind of hidden figures people behind the scene who always have been there. <laughs> Uh, who are the ones that don't get the mention, who are now finally starting to see the light of day. So remember that name, Daniel Leonard de Beju. Remember the name Island Queen. Remember the Liberty Tubes disaster. Remember these unsung heroes, these men, these nameless people who sacrificed their own lives to save others. Uh, You don't have to look far to find a hero. And uh, you can find these all throughout our history and find them today. Uh, Sometimes they're not always the people you think they are. We are planning on doing uh, multiple episodes like this. We have three kind of tales. If you do have a good tale for us that you'd like us to talk about, that uh, 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 you know, like any one, it doesn't have to be about anything. Absolutely anything in Pittsburgh history. Get a hold of us. Send us an email. I've had a lot of requests, so I will be incorporating these into future shows, and uh, we'll put together some other shows like this, uh, and we're kind of mix it up a bit. And uh,
0: yeah, because I think it's good to have those longer shows where we really tackle something for 45 minutes to an hour, but also this podcast gives you a little bit more time to explain maybe stories that don't take that long, but, uh, you know, a good 10 to 15 minute tale that it's not going to be get on the regular radio and you can really explore here.
1: Yeah. I mean, just like, you know, on September 9th, I was here on this, you know, live on the air and I talked about it for a brief second, you know, the Island Queen. I'm like, yep, it exploded. The end. This gives us that opportunity. You find, you know an interesting story, cool story? Reach out to us. Let us know. Uh, we'll be more than happy to look into it and talk about it in our future show, uh, future trilogy of tales show. Well, How can people get a hold of you? Get a hold of me through uh, any kind of social media platform you're on, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, send me an email, oddpittsburgh at gmail.com. And uh, not, I'm not hard to find. So, might not respond right away, but I—you'll be on my radar. Until next time, that's it for Pitt.